0: Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting podcast. Visit our website at www.oalai.org, that's oalaig.org, where you'll find three separate speaker feeds with over 400 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep the special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight. I'm sorry, I... I'm sorry? Ed! Ed. You can sit down. Yeah, do you need this? No, that's for you for after the meeting. Hi, my name's Ed. I'm a compulsive overeater. And uh, (laughs) I love that. You know, that's. um, I could leave right now and uh, I consider myself absent for the rest of the day because just. Hearing that makes me feel a part of. And uh, before I came to the program, I was not feeling a part of at all. Um, I uh, Just to get some numbers out of the way, <clears throat> I was just doing a little bit of math. And I will be abstinent uh, 20 years on uh, October 12, 2027 which means I have about four and a half years (laughs) um, of course 20 years does sound better Um, you know and uh, oh yeah and one other thing just a little bit of housekeeping this is not a non-participation meeting okay because I will get lost and I will forget where I'm at and I will be calling on you to help me Remember where I'm at, so um, because i hate I hate to be redundant, and I really seriously I don't know what happened man ever since I turned like forty five or so, you know, um, which was just yesterday um, the um, you know things just they just like write mid sentence, and I forget what i I'm doing, I forget what I'm talking about, so um, it's your responsibility to help me find my place, so don't forget that um, so you know. Like I said, the feeling of loneliness and isolation and being separate and never really feeling a part of, um, you know, it just overwhelmed my life from my earliest memories. You know, I was I I just always felt weird, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, And I think I earned I earned that. That, that moniker of... The kids used to call me Ed Weirdo. Um, <laughs> you know, but I just... I was never comfortable. And we hear it talked a lot about being comfortable in our own skin. And I was never comfortable in my own skin because I always had a, a, just an empty hole in the pit of my stomach. And I always say it's right with, you know, the bottom of my rib cage. Um, you know, and it made me do things like want to, you know, put my fist through walls you know um i broke my foot twice <clears throat> uh kicking cement walls um just out of sheer frustration and anger you know because i was never comfortable ever and my first you know my first recollections of getting out of myself to feel comfortable was with food later on in my life it was alcohol and drugs um I will be sober 24 years. Actually, this one's true. (laughs) In a couple of weeks. And um, So, you know, a lot of my story about the program is is centered around my work with the steps. And I find that, you know, my spiritual journey, um, for me, you know, really happened working the steps. For me. There are certain things that don't translate from one program to the other. But for me, a lot of it does translate... And um, um, it's a big part of my story, just, you know, my experience with the steps. So, the water person didn't show up either, did they? Um, Okay, so, how weird was that? Well, I will tell you. At the age of about six or seven, I found a really good way... Um, to get out of myself was through hyperventilation. And I found that, you know, if you, if you hyperventilated really hard, right, and you um, uh, held your breath after that, and you actually, you know, kind of pushed the air out, and you had somebody come up from behind you and sort of squeeze you, and then you rolled down a hill, you could get really dizzy. Right? <laughs> and uh, we used to do this, and I had a hill in front of my house when I was growing up. And uh, there was this rule in the neighborhood when the lights come on, you know, most of the kids had to go home. When the streets light come on, you got to go home, right? So, um, all the kids would go home and I'd be out there hyperventilating and rolling down the hill on my own. So I'd hyperventilate on my own, I ate on my own, uh, you know, I drank on my own. I just, you know, it was... um, you know, a lot of people say they'd like to go back and relive parts of their lives, and I hated growing up. Mm-hmm. I absolutely hated it. Um, oh, thank you so much. And a lot of people around me hated me, too. In particular, the nuns. <laughs> because I was that kid. Uh, I think the best way to put it is that when you... When... Oh, I, you, I always have, you know, I got this habit of saying you, but really what I'm doing is I'm talking for myself. And it's, and it's like, being that alone, I had a trouble with authority. And I also had trouble believing or having faith in anything other than my own survival techniques. Um, and that's for a number of reasons. Number one is, I grew up in a, in, a, in a very abusive and violent household. Now, that's not what made me what I am, okay? That's just part of my history. Um, but it did help me create certain survival techniques, and none of that included prayer, okay? Um, so when my mom was raging, I was not down in my room praying, all right? Um, so as far as I was concerned, there was no God. As much as they tried to tell me that in Catholic school, there was no God. I was the kid in the back of the room when they were talking about all the miracles and you know uh, the Immaculate Conception. I was the kid in the back of the room saying Mary had to get laid. And um, I had trouble understanding any concept of faith. And that was true for a long, long time. And when you have no faith, when I have no faith, All I'm left with is judging you and getting angry and getting pissed off because you're not doing things the way I think you should do them. Um, And that includes girlfriends, wives, kids, uh, employees. It really didn't matter. Um, After I had started working the steps for a while... um, You know, it's funny because I was listening to the radio one day, and there was a guy who, uh, a sober guy, who was talking on the radio. And he grew up in an abusive household, and he talks about he talked about when he was a little older how he would wake up and pick his fights before he left the house, and that's what I was doing. I was picking my fights with people before I left the house because that's how I defined myself. I defined myself by, you know, and, and it wasn't, I wasn't intentionally saying, okay, I'm going to make your life miserable, right? But because I had nothing going on in here, the only way I could really, you know, feel comfortable about myself was to make you feel like crap. And I don't know if that makes sense to anybody, um, but it sure made sense to me. Um, it also got me into a lot of trouble. You know, the book talks about um, that we share in a general way what we used to be like, what happened, and what we are like now. So, um, what I used to be like was, you know, you take all that stuff that I just talked about and put me in a relationship and, well, suffice it to say that relationships did not work. I was the person described, you know, in the book, uh, incapable of having a true relationship with another human being. Um, I like to say that I came to the program married with two kids and two cars in the garage, but I was alone. I was alone. And, um, God, it's just a horrible way to exist, you know. Um, and I could not shove, you know, shove enough things in my face, be it, you know, uh, you know, a five pound count of cashew, uh, cashews or, you know, a case of beer. It really didn't matter. Um, so, I used to do some very bizarre things to make myself feel better, aside from making people feel miserable. Um, So, when I was younger, though, um, I... uh, And I have since made a lot of amends about this, but I used to abuse animals. And uh, they... I remember my parents bought me a dog, and they had to take him away from me after a couple of weeks because I was so horrible to the dog. And uh, I remember, you know, I would find... um, I would find, you know, injured birds in the woods and I would pin down their their wings, you know, and sort of torture them until they died. That's the kind of kid I was. Um, I was a juvenile delinquent. I used to break into other people's homes and trash them. Uh, It really didn't matter to me. Um... You know, I remember breaking into construction sites and and I don't know if you know much about home construction, but when you put a window, you buy a window frame and you put it in an opening and then, you know, you finish the construction around it. So you buy these window frames. And so they buy enough for a house and they put them in a row. And if you take a brick, you can throw it all the way through and and ruin every single one of them. And this is what we used to do for fun. And again, you know, I, I... The only reason I say this is because I have to be truthful about what I used to be like. And that's what I used to be like. Um, So if you can imagine taking someone like that and trying to put them in a relationship, you know, having a relationship with another human being for me for two weeks was a really long time. And I remember in high school, you know, it was like, I I, I never understood how people got to hang out with the same people or the same group of friends for any length of time because that was not my story. You know, I was hanging out with one group of people and then couldn't figure out why they got annoyed with me. So I'd go hang out with another group of people. And then maybe six months later, they'd forget about why I was such a jerk. And then I'd hang out with them again. But I was always moving, you know, and I was always moving with all kinds of relationships. Um, and... Uh, so, of course, I fell in, it was more lust than love with my uh, uh, high school sweetheart, who I actually knew when I was in sixth grade. And uh, so we got married, and um, I was such a nice guy to her, too, that um, she got pregnant once, and, um, was, and she was planning on having an abortion. And so she asked me to take her. And I told her, um, of course, she she had to remind me of this because I have no recollection of it, was, uh, my response to that was, you know, you got yourself into this, you can get yourself out of it. And so, she had to drive herself to this abortion and she was extremely sick on the way back and she barely, she had to take a bus and she barely made it back. And that was the best I could do. That was literally the best I could do. Um, and um, and you know and then I swore I would never I would never turn out like my parents. That's what I swore. I would never ever ever turn out like my parents. And um, sure enough, uh, was married, had a kid, and the son was just not behaving the way he was supposed to behaving. And, uh, you know, my routine was, you know, I would come home from a long day at work and I just wanted to be vertical. I wanted to stuff my face and drink as much scotch as I could and just be vertical on the couch. And so the kids, actually there were two kids at this point, and the kids were in the bathroom playing. They were taking a bath, doing what kids do when they take a bath and they're having a really good time. And But it was interrupting where I wanted to be at that point. So I, I got up off the couch and I ran into the bathroom and I raised my hand to my son. And he was about three at the time. And he curled up into a little ball in the bathtub and it stopped me. It didn't stop me enough to get me to the rooms, but it stopped me in my tracks to think maybe I have a problem. And the scary part about it was... See, that's the kind of stuff that my parents used to do to me. But I didn't know what to do about it and I had no idea what my problem was. And so that, that is a miserable place for a human being to be. When you know there's a problem but you don't know the way out and you can't fix the behavior. You know, how many diets, how many times did I say, okay, so today I'm not going to do it and then, you know, by the end of the day be so pigged out that, you know, my pants don't fit by the end of the day and I feel like crap and you know when you feel that crap what else you gotta do? You gotta eat more, you know? That's all I knew what to do was to just just do more. You know? And so um, you know by the time by the time I got to this to these rooms I was a little over two hundred and fifty pounds. I think. I was probably more. I stopped weighing myself at 235 at the doctor's office, and it took me six more months to get here. Six more months to get here. And it happened at a time where... um, um, And I'll get back to this story, because it's a very important story for my progress through the steps and the kind of person I was able to become by working the steps. And that was my wife was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. And so... um, I was later to learn that my survival techniques kicked in, and so I didn't have to think about anything. All I had to do was take care of her, and eat. And that's all I had to do. All I had to do was eat. And it got so bad when I, you know, when my 38 waist didn't fit anymore. Started out with a th- in high school at a 32. Um, and um, I thought a 38 was getting bad, and when they didn't fit anymore, I called a friend of mine, Uh, who I had gotten sober with. And uh, I called him one day because I had seen him in a meeting. I'd seen him in an AA meeting, and he was really thin. And when I met him, he was pretty huge. Um, We had both gotten sober together, and I, I, I remember him sitting over on the side just like sweating bullets, both because... He was so heavy and the other because he was just, you know, drying out from the alcohol. But the next time I was to see him a couple of years later, he had probably lost, you know, I think Walter's a hundred pounder, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and uh, so I called him and I said, OK, Walter, how did you do it? And real plainly, he just said, oh, hey. And he said, would you like to meet me at a meeting? I said, well, it's not quite that bad yet, you know. Um, so, you know, I lasted, I lasted a couple more weeks. And, you know, I went through the... It's funny because I went through the same thing I went with food that I went through with alcohol. That, That struggle for me to not wanting to eat and yet not being able to stop but wanting to stop, but not being able to stop, and not being able to say no to reaching into the refrigerator, reaching into the cupboard, or, you know, cruising down the candy aisle at Savon. You know, it was like, um, you know, the last couple of weeks it was, you know, I was hiding in my car, um, even, you know, the guy who cleans my office was making jokes about how many candy wrappers he was finding in my can, and I realized I had to actually hide my trash. Because you know, the person who's cleaning my office was beginning to take notice of how many candy bars I was eating in the afternoon. Um, I'm in the restaurant business, and so you know, there's food around all the time. Um, and my office right now is right near uh, where we store all the cookies, and they're not small ones either, okay. These are like the three hundred calorie ones, you know, they're about they're about, you know, three inches around. Mm-hmm. And um, so yeah, so then the forties didn't fit anymore. I mean you know, and and everything nothing fit and I just felt like crap. And so I finally called Walter and said, Okay, take me to one of those meetings and actually this is the first meeting I came to four and a half years ago. And um you know, even having a lot of time on the program, I was like a fish out of water, a total fish out of water. Um, now, the steps <laughs> because the steps for me are what are what was able, you know, to make me become a different person. So I gave you a picture of what I was like. and so I had been working a program and uh, thought I had worked, you know, the first eight or nine steps and couldn't figure out why I was still so angry. And uh, it turns out that I, I, um, I go to a particular meeting with a group of guys and we go on retreats on a, on, a, on a regular basis. And so one of these retreats happened to be at a Franciscan monastery, which is an order of the Catholic Church. Funny. I hadn't been to church in what, probably 25 years, right? And so the first retreat I go on is at a Catholic monastery. Saturday night, the priests make themselves available if you want to go to confession or you want to talk to them. So, I got kicked out of the Catholic school when I was 10 years old. Why would I want to go talk to a priest, right? But something something made me want to go and figure out why I still felt so empty in the middle, right in here, right? And so I went in and I sat down and I, and I started talking to this guy. His name was Father Chris, and I'll never forget this because it literally changed my life. This one evening, this one talk literally changed my life. And uh, so I, you know, went through my whole litany of my life and, you know, working the steps and doing all this work, and I said, but, you know, why am I still so angry, you know? I walk into work every day and I just want to fight with everybody. You know, I'm fighting with my wife, I'm fighting with my kids, you know, and I'm trying to work a program, but it just doesn't seem to be working. And little did I know, you know, I just, I had no faith. But he didn't say, you know, you got to get down on your knees and pray to God. He didn't say anything like that. He didn't say, you know, go over to the corner and say, twenty Hail Marys and you'll be okay. He asked me a very simple question and what he said was, are you sorry for everything you've ever done? And, you know, it hit me like a ton of bricks, because in the ninth step, right after the sex inventory, it talks about, um, you know, the question is asked, are we sorry for everything that we've ever done? You know, because if we are not, if we are not, our behavior is sure to hurt others, and we are more than likely going to drink as it says in the book or we are going to eat because we can't stand the pain anymore unless we are sorry for everything we've ever done. And I was not up until that point. I had gone through the motions but I was not truly sorry for everything I had ever done because I had no trust and I had no faith in anything other than myself and my own survival techniques. And that was working the steps for seven years. And so it all hit me like a ton of bricks. Um, and I just remember, you know, I could... I, I just, you know, I cried for the rest of the weekend. I probably cried for three weeks after that. Um, but at going back through the steps then and looking at it from a whole different perspective of, you know, what does it mean to have faith? What does it mean to have faith? What does it mean, you know, to give up that control? What does it mean then to, you know, be able to have a true relationship with another human being because you're not angry all the time? Um, and it started to happen for me in little, little bits and pieces here and there, you know, as I'd go through the day. And then instead of getting pissed off or angry at somebody, you know, it actually started out very simply that I just had to hold my breath and you know, just not say. just keep my mouth shut. That's how it all started. Just keep your mouth shut. Don't don't say a word. Right? And I literally had to keep saying that to myself. There were times where I'd be in a business meeting, I had to get up and leave the room because I was getting so angry. You know? But, I didn't act out, and I didn't make anybody, you know, I didn't hurt anybody else's feelings. Not to say that it's not perfect. Okay? Trust me. (laughs) It is not perfect. Um, However... I realized finally that what had happened to me was by not having any faith, I was not living life. Life was just passing me by. I was so busy controlling life and you and everything around me that everything was passing me by. And I remember there was a time, there was a time when I was in college and uh, uh, I remember one of my roommates just shaking his head at me you know, and, and, and look at me, looking at me with this disdain in, you know, this look of disdain in his face. And, you know, basically what he was saying was, you know, you just don't get it, do you? You just don't get it. And I had no idea what he was talking about. And what he was talking about was being able to listen to another human being and actually have empathy for what they were saying. And yet, I was married and had two kids. I've been married twice and had three kids. But yet, I was still unable to sit and listen to to another human being and really care about what they had to say. Um, And, you know, I love telling this little story because it is just so typical of how my life had changed. And I was... um, it was, and, and if you've heard this story, I'm sorry. You can go to take a restroom break if you like. But I love telling this story because it really means a lot to me. Um,
1: it was at Christmas
0: time and I had gone into Starbucks to buy a bag of coffee. And the kid behind the counter was obviously he was, you know, seasonal help. Um, he was just like he was so lost back there. God love him. He tried his best. But he screwed everything up. First he did the wrong coffee. Then he did the wrong grind. And then he put the right coffee and the right grind into the wrong bag. You know? <laughs> that was like 15 minutes just to get a pound of coffee. You know? Now, I had a choice at that point. Right? I had a choice. I could have gone one of two ways. Now, what I normally would have done and what is my normal behavior is... I would have made the kid feel like crap at my, you know, and and, and, and and make myself, you know, I don't even know how I used to make myself feel better doing that, you know, embarrassing the hell out of him, make him feel like crap, probably make him cry, you know, and then walk out all pissed off with a terrible emotional hangover and then have to go eat two pounds of chocolate just to recover from it. And, um, but I didn't. I didn't. I did, you know, one of those little things that I try and do and I just I just, you know, took a deep breath. And I really tried to be you know, tried to appreciate how hard he was working. And I actually started to just really have this little little feeling for this kid back there, just busting his ass, doing his best, you know. And he was screwing everything up but he was doing his best. And so he finally gets the thing done and he gets the bag and it's crooked and it's got the wrong label on it, you know, and at this point I really didn't care, you know. And he hands the bag to me and he's got this, he's got this beautiful grin on his face as if he just did the best job in his life, you know. And he says, have a wonderful holiday. And man, it just, it just killed me. It just killed me. Because, you know, I could have missed it. I could have missed it. And, uh, you know, if it, it, and, and, and if it were not for these steps, I would have missed that. And I missed so much of life, you know, by, you know, by pushing my way through it, by, you, you know, why? Because, because of that empty hole. You know, it's, we hear it say around here that this is an inside job. And it's an inside job because, for me, for me, there was an empty hole and I kept trying to fill it with things from the outside there's a great article that Bill Wilson wrote, I don't know, in the, in the 30s or 40s, it's, um, it's called Emotional Sobriety. And he talks about making himself or defining himself and giving himself satisfaction by using, you know, with outside things. By how you feel about me, by what you think, by what I can buy, right? By all that outside stuff. And what's going to happen is I'm just going to get disappointed and I'm going to get depressed and then I'm going to wind up feeling like crap again, Right? But if I start from the inside looking out, if I start from the inside looking out, it starts to fill up. And that, to me, is faith. That's where my faith started for me. And so, um, where it took me to, and I'll finish with this story, because for me, this one even more typifies the difference you know, between the kind of person that I was and the kind of person that I, you know, the kind of things that I'm able to do now. So I think I told you that my wife was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. It was about, she's just passed uh, four years in October. So, and um, so when she was diagnosed, now, when my ex-wife told me she was pregnant, she had to drive herself to get the abortion. When my wife was diagnosed, I did not miss one single chemo treatment. I did not miss... And after you get chemo treatments, a lot of times, you know, you have to get these hydrations because if you let the chemo build up in your system, it gets extremely toxic, more toxic than normal. And so you have to flush it out. And so she had to go in for three days after each treatment. And she'd get three treatments every 21 days, which meant that she also had to go back to the hospital for three days after each of those. So we were in the hospital just about every day. There was one time we were there for 72 hours. She was so sick. And um, and so that's a big difference just right there. That's a huge difference right there. But I believe that with these steps there is absolutely nothing and that together there's absolutely nothing that we can't get through together and with the steps absolutely nothing because here it was it was 4 o'clock in the morning and it was pitch black outside it could have even been raining for all I remember and um, I just remember that Nancy was just I mean I don't know how anyone could be any sicker than the way she felt that night and um it was the scariest thing I've ever had to experience in my life. And I didn't know what to do. What am I going, you know, what do I know? I'm not a doctor, you know, I we've never been down this road before. I don't know what to do. I have no idea what to do. I'm freaking out, you know, do I call the, you know, do I call the 24-hour line at Cedars? But we already did that and they already told us what to do and it didn't work. You know, what do I do now? And I don't know why I did this, but, I grabbed her by the hands, you know, I got on my knees and we went through the first three steps and we substituted cancer and we said, okay, we are powerless over cancer and our lives are unmanageable. And then we just went through the first three steps. And I don't even know what happened at that point. All I can tell you is that she made it through one of the toughest chemo regimens there are for this ovarian cancer. 30% of the women who start it make it through. The other two-thirds don't even make it through. And she made it through. Now, is it because, you know, we actually prayed and worked the steps that night? I don't believe so. But what I do believe is that by turning it over and not trying to fight it, you know, and actually having a little bit of faith that she was going to be okay, she was able to show up every day And then face whatever she had to face. Um, And that, for me, you know, just that faith and having something here that never used to be there, and with the help of everybody else in these rooms, that's why I am convinced that there is absolutely nothing we can't get through. Absolutely nothing. Because I've seen it divorce, bankruptcy, you know, death, birth. It really doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. But we don't have to eat over it. We don't have to. Um, and that's all I got to say. So it's, uh, we have five minutes left for uh, questions. I do want to thank Martha, even though she's not here, and I probably shouldn't just because she didn't show up, but for asking me to come and share. So thank you for being here. So we have five minutes. I'm Lynn Composible for Eater. Hi, Lynn. Can you talk a little bit about um, your early um, abstinence as a newcomer, Mm -hmm. relative newcomer, and sober in another program, and you said it doesn't translate?
1: Certain things don't.
0: I'd like to know, like for your physical recovery, Uh what your abstinence was, a little bit of your... um, It was very strict back then. When I first came in, oh, I'm sorry, thank you. You know, of all people, I should know that, right? So um, the question was, could I talk about my early abstinence having some time in another program? And what was my early abstinence like? It was a lot stricter than it is today. Um, What it was, was I, I inventory my food every day and email it to my sponsor. So I'm accountable for it. That's number one. Um, for me, it was it was I had a list of things that were absolute trigger foods for me, and so I didn't go near them. And that included things like pizza, sugar, you know, ice cream, candy, you know, recreational sugar. Can't avoid sugar totally. I found out um, if you do that, you don't get to eat any fruit either. You know, um, and the flour that was a huge one. Um, it's changed over time because for me. Being too restrictive makes me want to rebel and then go out and eat. Mm -hmm. So, I've found a different way around that, which I can talk to you about later if you want, but um, let's just suffice to say, there are still certain things that I don't go near, you know, And um, um, but I don't restrict myself as much as I did then, which I had to do. I just had to do it. Um, And it was that, what really got me through that early part with all that was letting it go. Was that first half of the first step. I'm a compulsive overeater. Boom, You can't eat that anymore. Duh. Okay, I get that. You know, that's what helped, you know, from the other program Translate Over was that first half of the first step. And it's just absolute. It's just absolute. So the question is, if I have it right, is what do I do when I'm in it with the feelings and I'm around food and I don't pick it up? What do I do? Um, I heard it said in this meeting and it's what I use now. I say no. No. And again, it goes back to the first half of the first step. That's what I have to do. I'm a compulsive overeater and you can't have 12 of those cookies. I'm sorry, it's not going to happen today. Okay? Okay? You know, haagen is out, you know. Um, and some days it's easier than others. And the other thing I do is I pick up the phone and I call my sponsor. And even if he's not there, just being accountable to that helps tremendously. Because I, it is, it's, it's, it's really difficult some days, particularly days when I work really long, hard, stressful days and they do get that way in that business that, man, that's all I want to do, especially when they're coming out of the oven. Oh, my God. It's horrible. It's torture sometimes, you know. Then i got to get out. I just got to... I don't even go in the kitchen, you know. How was I able to develop the faith that I was lacking for so many years? Um, I was beaten into submission, basically. Um, (sighs) It happened over time. It's a really good question, you know. Um... And I, and I would kind of liken it to, you know, my feeling about prayer because it was always hard for me to get on my knees, right? Um, and that goes back to, you know, having religion shoved down my throat. And so um, it was like, again, it's the choice. I have a choice. Either I can trust that I'm going to be okay or I can stay in the negative thinking that this is really going to suck. And what really helps is having certain people that I talk to on a regular basis that I can pick up the phone and I can call them and say, you know what, I got to do this and it's really going to suck. And blah, 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 blah. and I don't want to do it. and It's going to be miserable. And he just sits and he laughs, you know, and he goes and he goes, well, wait a minute. He said we have mountains of empirical evidence here, mountains of evidence to prove that if we just show up, everything's going to be OK. So why is it that we have to think that it's not gonna be okay? Why do we do that? And that's where the phone comes in. You know? And that's where, you know, at least having one person who knows everything about you comes in for me. And I'm lucky I got a couple of them. And I'm done, so thank you again for having me.